Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Brigadier Hicks, who was temporarily commanding the division in General Urquhart's absence, was determined to try to reinforce the men holding the Arnhem Bridge, elements of the 1st Parachute Brigade. He therefore dispatched units of the South Staffordshire Regiment, who had come by glider to aid them, but after bitter fighting they were unable to reach the bridge, for the Germans had reacted and brought in reinforcements, which included elements of the Panzer Division. It was at this stage that Major General Urquhart, who had himself been cut off by the battle, faced a critical decision whether to abandon the force at the bridge under Lieutenant Colonel Frost, DSO, MC. He decided to do so, and form a perimeter round the subtown of Oosterbeek and hold out there until the Second Army arrived. It was in this perimeter that the formations of Numbers 1 and 2 Wings, the Glider Pilot Regiment, fought. During this defence, Brigadier J.W. Hackett, DSO, MBE, was wounded, and his command of the 4th Parachute Brigade came under Lieutenant Colonel Ian Murray, DSO, the Glider Pilot Regiment. This is an extraordinary example of the flexibility of the glider pilot regiment, for Murray had flown the glider which carried Major General Urquhart. He commanded this brigade with distinction and courage. Another example of this flexibility was the fact that Regimental Sergeant Major Tilly took over the command of the 7th Battalion, the King's Own Scottish Borderers, in which he fought with such distinction that he was later decorated with the Distinguished Conduct Medal. Some idea of the actual conditions of this battle is graphically described by Staff Sergeant Leslie Gibbons of D Squadron, as related here. Sunday, September 17th. The first lift, watched by the whole aerodrome, took off this morning in perfect weather without a hitch. We had bad goodbye to them and promised to see them the next morning at Arnhem. The trip across to Holland will take approximately four hours. We went back to our billets to prepare for our trip on the morrow and to await the return of the tug planes. We watched the tug planes returning and counted them to find if any were missing, listened in on the radio and heard that the landings had been announced by 21st Army Group and that opposition was light. This is good news, but all the same, we are wondering what sort of reception we shall get on the morrow when the Huns realise they are being attacked and are wondering who will get there first, their reinforcements or us. We get our final briefing, and our course is to be different from that of the first lifts. Instead of flying in over the Dutch islands, we're to cross over the Belgian coast and then fly up over the 21st Group battle. Nobody seems very keen on this, as we expect flak from the enemy Akak guns. Have a bit of a party in the mess that night. Several of the chaps get under the weather, but for once I remain a TT. Want to have a clear head in the morning. Monday, September the 18th. Weather does not look too good. We've just finished a breakfast of egg and bacon and are waiting further orders. This waiting is the worst part of any operation. Looking around, everyone seems calm enough, but you can't help noticing the air of expectancy hanging over the place. The chaps are just the same. One fellow is taking bets as to how many of us will get the chop. Wonder if he'll come back to collect his debts or maybe pay out. My second pilot, Sergeant Knapman, is as always calm, cool and collected. We were together on D-Day and now consider ourselves a battle-hardened crew. Anyway, we both have confidence in each other. We are now on the towpath and have just heard that our takeoff has been postponed due to bad weather. Have just checked up on our glider and its load. Our load consists of a six-pounder anti-tank gun, a jeep and four bods. Our own personal armament is as follows. 
Nappy has a rifle and a hundred rounds of ammunition, four hand grenades and a fighting knife. Myself, I have a Sten gun and six magazines of ammunition, four hand grenades and a fighting knife. I've just heard that takeoff starts at 10.30 hours. Our turn will be approximately at 10.45 hours. Five minutes to go, we're all strapped in and awaiting our turn. Our glider has been named Isle of Jersey. Nappy is now flying the thing. We had a good takeoff, one of the best I've made. Must be, even as Nappy complimented me. The weather is pretty lousy. Plenty of cloud and slight rain, but not bumpy. The English coast is now behind us. Weather is still lousy, and one or two gliders have come down in the drink. Should be picked up all right, as we've seen one or two boats hanging around. In another 15 minutes, we should be over our landing zone. Weather has cleared up, and it really is quite fine. Can at this moment see some of our fighter escort flying around. They are typhoons. One of them has just done a good job of work. Just after we had crossed the Dutch coast, an enemy flak barge opened up, but hadn't time to do any damage before the Tiffy shot it up and silenced it for good. We will be over our landing zone in another five minutes. I'm getting ready to take over from Nappy. I've just had a bit of flak at us. believe some went through the wing. We are now safely on the deck. We made a good landing and unloaded in 15 minutes. We're sheltering in a wood, forming up and waiting to advance on Arnhem. Have joined up with the rest of our flight. Everyone seems to have got there safely. Our captain is away getting instructions. It was a good job that our takeoff was postponed this morning as enemy fighters were over here the time that we were due to arrive. Our orders are to join in the advance on Arnhem and to provide infantry support for the anti-tank guns. I'm writing this in the dark. We are somewhere on the road to Arnhem. Our leading columns have run into trouble and there is a bit of a battle going on a few hundred yards ahead. We are guarding the flanks. Enemy fighter is now overhead. Has just strafed the column a few hundred yards down. Tuesday, September the 19th. Column is still halted and fighting is still going on forward. Spent a miserable night, no sleep and intensely cold. Nappy is now cooking our breakfast on his tommy cooker. Consists of porridge blocks, dry biscuits and the indispensable tea. Breakfast went down well and word has gone round that we will be advancing in a very short while. Also heard that things aren't going to plan. Have cleaned our weapons and checked our ammo. It is now lunchtime and I'm writing this at the side of the road just outside the village of Oosterbeek, somewhere to the west of Arnhem. Things can't be going to plan as we should have been in Arnhem by now. Got involved in a battle this morning and quite a number of the chaps got the chop. Also had a strafing attack by German fighters, had to abandon our jeep and dive for cover. Counted 50 of the fighters, didn't seem to do much damage. Good job they didn't carry bombs. Wonder where our air force is. Supply planes are due in this afternoon. As we are not in control of our intended dropping zone, I wonder if they had been informed of the fact by wireless. Our flight has got somewhat split up after the battle this morning. At least two thirds are missing, including our captain. This afternoon we are going to try to contact glider pilot headquarters. Evening is here and many things have happened. I am now in the grounds of a large house which is being used as divisional headquarters and have joined up with some of the squadrons. There are still quite a number missing. The resupply came in this afternoon, also a few gliders. They have had a very hostile reception and quite a number got shot down. I've never seen so much flak in all my life. After the resupply we got orders to withdraw to our present position with the Bosch following up on our tails. We are now well dug in and things are fairly quiet have managed to get a meal, also had a wash and a shave. The time is almost midnight and things are still fairly quiet, though we've had slight mortaring with a few casualties. Everyone is standing too, as I believe they are expecting an attack to develop. Too cold in any case to attempt to sleep. 
Dawn was heralded by an intense mortar barrage. Quite a frightening experience when one has just to sit there and take it, quite unable to hit back. Managed to brew up a cup of tea, which went down well. Also had an oatmeal cube for breakfast. Camouflaged our position with branches of trees blown down by the mortar barrage. Once again, I find myself in a new position. Late this morning, the Bosch broke through almost into our positions. We counterattacked and drove them back. My Sten gun jammed when I needed it most. We are now dug in at the side of the road with the Bosch in a wood about a hundred yards in front of us. Mortaring is getting rather annoying and becoming more intense. Casualties mounting up. No news reached us of Second Army. Rumour is that they are held up at Nijmegen. According to plan, they should have reached us by now. Hear that there is a small party isolated down at the bridge. It appears that we are split up into small groups and fighting is completely disorganised. I am sharing a trench with a young fellow called Tyler. We made it comfortable by lining it with an eiderdown and blankets from a neighbouring house. Contacted Nappy, who is quite well, but he informed me that our section leader, Lieutenant Chittleberger, has been killed. Guard duties have been arranged, but we must all be prepared for immediate action. I've checked over my Sten gun and I'm certain that the thing won't jam again. Mortaring is still continuing. One has just burst a few yards away and we are both crouched down in the trench, praying that the Second Army will arrive on the morrow. Morale is high, but casualties are mounting up. Thursday, September the 21st. No fresh news of Second Army, though plenty of rumours flying around. Mortaring once again heralded the dawn pretty intense too. We're having trouble with the sniper. He has already killed a couple of chaps. It is a case of running the gauntlet to fetch water and supplies. Fell in the sanitary trench this morning to take cover from mortars. Feel a bit lousy. Resupply is due in this afternoon. Looks as though they will get another good reception. Plenty of 88mm flying about. Hope they know that we're in different positions. It is now evening. Resupply came in under murderous fire. Counted at least 12 shot down. Doubt if 20% of the supplies fell into our hands. One container fell near us. Rushed for it, hoping to find food, only to find that it contained two 17-pounder shells. Absolutely useless to us, as all our 17-pounders are out of action. Mortaring is still our main source of trouble, but food is also running short. News of the Second Army is that elements have reached the bank of the river and should attempt a crossing tonight. Let us hope that they make it. We can't possibly hold out much longer. Casualties are heavy. There can't be a quarter of the division left. Food is short and ammunition low. Closing this tonight to the accompaniment of the blasted mortars. Counted 18 in a minute at one time. Friday, September 22nd. Glad to find myself still alive. Hope and the will to carry on rises up and down. We can see in one another what wrecks we really are. Our nerves have not cracked, but the intense bombardment, lack of food and washing and hygienic conditions is beginning to show its mark. Rumours are still flying around, but nobody seems to believe them, as we already have had too many false hopes. Breakfast this morning consisted of a couple of pieces of biscuit and some tea we managed to scrounge from a dead man's pack. Mortaring started a few minutes ago. At the moment they are falling roughly 50 yards away, but close enough to make us keep our heads down. A sniper is still active and a chap in the next trench was killed by him last night. I am now in the regimental aid post, feeling very lucky to be alive. Have a shrapnel wound in the left hand and a bruise over the heart. Was coming out of the door of a house after collecting some food, when a shell, it must have been a shell as I didn't hear it coming, landed a few feet away. I was knocked out, 
and on coming to, found that apart from entering my hand, a piece of shrapnel had torn through my wings on my jacket and yet failed to penetrate my skin. The regimental aid post looks a sorry sight. The roof has been blown in, as have the doors and windows. The carnage of war has certainly left its scar on this once beautiful and picturesque countryside. Roads are torn up. Houses blown down, and the once green wooded area is splashed with the blood of friend and foe alike. On going back to my trench this evening, I found that it had received a direct hit and can find no trace of my companion. The next trench is also deserted. I've moved to the shelter of a house. Only food today has been apples and the few scraps of biscuits I had for breakfast. Rumour has just come through that a brigade of infantry is to assault the river tonight. We are all going to pray that it is true and that it succeeds. Saturday, September 23rd. Haven't felt like writing until now that it is evening and a lull has set in. Still fighting on, on our own. No sign of Second Army and that brigade rumour of yesterday is a washout. We'd like to find out who started it. The day has been like yesterday and the day before, just staying put and being plastered with shells and mortars. Never believed that anybody could stand that much. I've often seen and ridiculed war in the films, but no studio effect could ever exaggerate this. A few American Thunderbolts flew over us today and expended a few of their rockets on the Bosch. A sight for sore eyes. Sunday, September the 24th. The daily mortar barrage seems heavier than usual, or is it because our resistance is weakening? Rumours, and still more rumours, only a few more hours. Hang on, chaps, when you're stuck in a trench being blasted to hell, tired, hungry and filthy. The hardest part is not knowing what you're really there for and what's going on. We've been out on a patrol searching a row of houses for a sniper. Must have heard us coming, as we saw no trace of him, though a few odd bullets came a little too close. In one house was a piano, which I managed to strum a few notes on, until shouted at to shut up else the whole thing Germans would be at our door. Spoil sports. Hand was throbbing, but had it dressed at the RAP. The patrol was a welcome break from sitting around in a trench. Monday, September the 25th. Beginning to despair of ever getting out of here in one piece. Still being mortared and still more rumours. It's late afternoon and we've just heard the news. We're pulling out tonight across the river. Second Army can't reach us. Our time for withdrawal is 12.30. Also told, our artillery from over the river is firing in support and what a welcome sound. Their shells are pretty close at the moment. They appear to be falling only a few hundred yards ahead. I'm now over the river and lucky to be here. Must have fallen asleep in the trench as I awoke to find the chaps from the neighbouring trenches had already evacuated without me made my way towards the river and was lucky to join up with a group of paratroopers. Not much trouble getting back to the river, but while on the bank awaiting a boat, those blasted mortars caught up with us and plastered the immediate area. A boat came to the bank with a Canadian in charge. What a welcome sight. And when we saw the flat helmets of the British Tommy, different from the Airborns, we knew help was at hand. I was lucky. A voice shouted, any wounded? And a para-private, seeing my blood-stained bandaged hand, pushed me forward. There was no panic. The others held back. Once the boat was full, only a handful aboard, we were away. All around the boats, chaps were swimming. A last fanfare from those being mortars. A muddy crawl up a bank. A helping hand. A long march down a country lane. And safety. Other aspects of the fighting in and around the woods and on the Oosterbeek Arnhem Road are given in the following accounts. Staff Sergeant Maurice Willoughby writes... During the Arnhem battle, I saw a party of officers crossing a garden and disappearing over a high brick wall. 
One of them was General Urquhart, whose first attempt at climbing the wall was unsuccessful. Glider pilot Major John Hemmings suddenly appeared behind him and, placing both hands firmly under the General's bottom, heaved him over. As the great man disappeared from view, the boyish-looking glider pilot grinned and said, I'll be able to dine out on this one for months. Some days later, I saw him with other glider pilots inside Oosterbeek Church. They were a motley of very tired, wet and dirty men, but somehow Major Hemmings had managed to keep himself shaven. He eventually moved off with Major Kane of the South Staffordshire Regiment to take up position along the Arnhem-Oosterbeek Road, and I did not see him again until 1946 in the Holy Land. He was then lying severely wounded, the victim of a terrorist attack. When I visited him in hospital some time later, his first remark was, Golly, what an anticlimax. He remained in hospital for three years. Staff Sergeant Carling recalls two incidents which show that even in the heat of battle, the human touch was never far away in the company of these very tough young men. The kid with the Schmeisser opened up on us from 70 yards away, and I saw a splinter fly off the stock of MacDonald's rifle just as he started to fall. I sidestepped behind one of the big trees on the verge and Wicks, who had the Bren, dived into the scrub oak just ahead of me. Our patrol had run into an ambush about 20 yards from the crossing where we were supposed to set up the machine gun. When I looked out, the German boy had just started up the track towards me. He stopped to fire a long burst when he saw me aim at him, which was his fatal error. One carefully aimed shot is always better than a scatter from the hip, unless you're at point-blank range. My 303, however, brought answering fire from an MG34, and as I joined Wicks in the scrub, I could hear the bursts cutting into the tree trunks. There was no way of seeing where they came from, but I wanted to have a bash at them with the Bren. I gave my rifle to Wicks to cover me for the run-up. What an abortive effort. As I was moving forward, I seemed to pass through the next burst. One shot struck the barrel locking lever just by my left hand and put the gun and my hand out of action. By some act of grace, I was not hit, and had time to get close to a big tree while I recovered my composure. I could see MacDonald lying face down with a big hole in the back of his smock, all bloody and ragged. He looked very dead, and I needed a rifle. Heaven forgive me, but it seemed the only thing to do at the time. I heard orders being shouted in German. Their commander was urging them to move in, so I lobbed a grenade in the general direction of his voice. Somebody shouted in English, Who the hell's chucking bloody grenades about? Just a split second before the real hate got going. MacDonald wasn't breathing enough for me to detect it, and when I turned him over, I saw that he had a nasty little hole in the middle of his chest. I met him in Chelsea seven or eight years later. He told me about his escape from the ambulance train and his long session with the Dutch underground. He asked me to stay with him after we'd swapped a few yarns in the bunch of grapes. As I greeted his father back at his house, he said, Carl has just been telling me how he saved my life. I'll always remember that hooded sideways glance and quiet half-smile of his. A bullet had ricocheted off his rifle into his chest and had somehow been deflected round the outside of his ribs. Although badly hurt, he was able, as soon as he'd been bandaged up a bit, to jump from the moving train and make a run for freedom. But that's his story, and I hope he takes time to write it for us. I left him there in the scrub oak, and the Jerry Red Cross types picked him up later, by God's mercy. I often wonder whether they picked up the kid with the Schmeisser as well. I'd like to have a yarn with him if they did. Maybe he's with the others, of course. If he's getting old and weary, I've no doubt he's shed most of the hate nonsense by now and is hoping, like me, for a nice peaceful old age and some grandsons to listen to his line shooting. Within this fatal perimeter, immense courage was shown. The elements of the 1st Airborne Division all fought with astonishing tenacity. 
They suffered under an intensive bombardment and it is said that 15 mortar bombers rained down a minute. It was these bombs which caused more casualties than any other weapon. The wonderful work of the REMC dealing with the ever-increasing number of wounded is today a legend. Casualties were placed in St Elizabeth Hospital on the evening of the first day, but the Germans reoccupied the buildings, taking everybody prisoner, and a full-scale battle raged round the chief medical station and even in it. Here is one poignant story about the hospital. Tony Murray at Arnhem. During the battle, I had received written instructions to send a squadron, Tony Murray's, to occupy a position away on our right. The remnants of number two wing of the glider pilot regiment was holding the left-hand corner of the perimeter farthest from the river. At this time, Peter Jackson was trying to cover a thickly wooded area with his now depleted squadron. It was not long after we had parted with Tony Murray's squadron that he was heavily attacked and lost 25% of his remaining strength and was compelled to withdraw, having been very nearly cut off. Tony got back to divisional headquarters and I requested that he be returned at once to my command as I was very short of manpower. We had been fortunate enough to acquire a Vickers gun and its crew of parachutists together with a six-pounder anti-tank gun and things began to seem a little better. The machine gunners did tremendous work from a corner of the wood which we were holding and the anti-tank gun blew up a German tank at short range while Peter Jackson and his men held off repeated attempts by the enemy to drive them out of the wood with flamethrowers and armoured vehicles, including self-propelled guns. It was just about this time that Tony Murray walked somewhat shakily into Wing HQ and remarked, I think the so-and-sos have got me. We sat him on a couch and began to examine him for the damage. At first we couldn't see anything, then Tony said something about his neck feeling funny, and we spotted the trouble. An enemy bullet had passed clean through his neck from one side to the other, just about level with his collar. There was very little bleeding, but we couldn't tell what damage had been done inside, and as Tony was obviously not feeling very good, we dispatched him on a jeep to the hospital, which by that time was being operated by both German and British personnel, and was inside the German lines. We later heard Tony's own story, which I think exemplifies the spirit of the glider pilots. Having arrived at the hospital, Tony had to wait his turn, and was eventually patched up and told to take it easy. He was, of course, by then ostensibly a prisoner. The doctor, I believe, told him that he was very lucky as he, the doctor, would have found it quite difficult to push a sharp instrument from one side of his throat to the other without doing any material damage. Tony hung around the hospital for a couple of days and finally, getting fed up with doing nothing, walked out and spent most of the day dodging the enemy. He finally got back to us, explaining when he arrived that he had been a little bored in hospital, so thought he would come back. It was at this time that we lost poor Tony Plowman, who had taken over Tony Murray's squadron when he was wounded. The Germans were, as usual, extremely aggressive and shortly afterwards put in an attack on our hard-pressed corner of the wood. They came in yelling under a hail of mortar fire and actually got into the thinly held line, where they were stopped by Tony Plowman, who, gathering his few weary men together and with a revolver in one hand and a walking stick in the other, led an immediate counter-attack which drove the Germans out. Then, as a final insult to Hitler's men, Tony led his men in the derisive singing of Lily Marlena, the Germans' own song. Having completed the first verse or two, Tony Plowman, in a voice which carried to the farthest corners of the wood, now strewn with the dead of both sides, roared to the enemy, Come on, you bastards! Come and get her! There were roars of delight from his men, quickly followed by frightened yells from the enemy, who began to shout, Don't shoot! Don't shoot! as a number came in with their hands up. Not long afterwards, a jeep rolled up to our headquarters, flying a Red Cross flag, and on it lay poor Tony Plowman. As the jeep drove away, I heard him call out, Tell John I'm sorry.
It was with great sorrow that I heard later that he had died in hospital. Soon food and ammunition started to go down and the defenders of the perimeter had to forage for food in the houses of Arnhem. The battles and skirmishes in and around the houses are well illustrated in the following narratives. Staff Sergeant Les Foster's story. It was the morning of the third or fourth day of the Arnhem operation and we had taken a row of houses on the extreme left flank facing towards the river. I say the extreme flank because the house next to ours across the width of the road was occupied by Jerry and we felt that this was extreme in anyone's book. Lieutenant Smith, myself and two other staff sergeants and another sergeant were the first to move in and we were trying to find positions which would command views on three sides, the other side being covered by the chaps in the next house along the row. How to defend the house was a tricky problem as some parts were already missing which made us feel exposed and there were, for a start, only the five of us for all-round cover. Personally, I was all for heads down in the cellar and no one breathed a word, but I was outvoted. Our staff sergeant, I can't remember his name, so I'll call him Charlie, insisted on reconnoitring the rooms with a meerschaum pipe going full blast and sending up what must have seemed to the Germans to be smoke signals. i just returned from one of the upstairs rooms when I heard a shout from Charlie who staggered out into the hall with his face covered in blood. I wiped away what I could and found that a bullet had scoured a deep furrow right across the top of his forehead, taking a good part of the bone with it. As I bound this ghastly wound with my first aid dressing, I kept thinking that half an inch lower and he would no longer have been with us. Although his courage was amazing and an example to all of us, it was obvious that the five of us, so far as any fighting was concerned, were now reduced to four. The lower part of the house contained only one room which was not exposed on the sides covered by Jerry, and this we used as our HQ and first aid room. Fortunately, this room contained a bed, an enormous thing with three great mattresses, and into this we put Charlie, where he lay propped up with several pillows, the inevitable smoke screen pouring from his pipe. By this time, we had been reinforced by another three pilots and were waiting to see what Jerry intended to do. We weren't left wondering very long, for at about five o'clock we heard the ominous sound of tanks and from our lookout in the bathroom saw the ugly hull of a tiger come to rest outside the house across the road. This was too good an opportunity to miss, so we dashed downstairs for our piat and set it up on a small table in the bathroom. I pushed the first bomb into the pit and Lieutenant Smith sighted and then fired. The bomb exploded just in front of the tank and our second hit the same spot. At this, the hatch was thrown up and the head of a German officer popped up. He looked somewhat surprised and seemed to be asking the German infantryman in the house what all the noise was about. I immediately let fly with my rifle but missed an absolute sitter by about a foot. The bullet ricocheted off the hull of the tank and the head shot down. This, I regret to say, was not taken very kindly by the tank crew. For a couple of hours after this incident, Jerry decided to move us out of our temporary accommodation and to this end put in a fairly heavy attack. Our great advantage must have been that he didn't know our actual strength and although in vocal output the Germans proved far superior, we were dashing about firing and throwing grenades like a group of instructors on a refresher course and this must have been extremely confusing for the enemy. It was during this rather warm period, and just as the light was beginning to fail, that one of the sergeants in the next house down the road, hearing Germanic war cries round our house and thinking that we had been overwhelmed, decided to give a helping hand by tossing three grenades from an upper window of his house into our HQ. This was happening just as I had dashed across to his house to report to the captain that for the moment we were holding our own. While I was talking, the sergeant came into the room in a terribly agitated state, indicating that he had realised too late that, from the Anglo-Saxon oaths that had fallen on his ears, he had done a terrible thing by throwing grenades, etc., etc. 
Hearing this, I hurried back, expecting to see a gory mess, only to find that two of the three grenades had been quickly snapped up and hurled out again, and the third had exploded under Charlie's bed. This had lifted him almost to the ceiling, but, by the grace of God and the Dutch housewife's love of mattresses, he was still more or less in one piece. He had, in fact, taken the whole thing, including our contretemps with the enemy, quite calmly, and was again in full blast with the old Meerschaum. The following morning, we were attacked in greater strength after a rather hectic night. A self-propelled gun joined in for good measure, and 20mm cannon shells were whipping through the house at an extremely rapid rate. Although Jerry failed again in his attempt to become the new occupant of our by now not very desirable residence, we decided that it was time to shift Charlie farther down the row, where it might be just a little quieter. So, out through the window Charlie went, heavily bandaged and very pale, to run the gauntlet down the back of the house for about 30 yards. Several of us had already been farther than this the previous day to scrounge more ammunition, and we had received no injuries in the process. However, Charlie was not to be so fortunate, for he had almost reached his destination when he was shot in the backside. This was enough to make any man give up his meerschaum, but not Charlie. It was his staff, his emblem of strength, of courage and of fortitude. When at last I reached the other side of the river, I inquired whether Charlie had made it. I found that he had, although he had been shot yet again, this time in the arm. When I asked whether he was smoking when crossing the river, I received the inevitable reply. That meerschaum, it was going like a bloody campfire. Sergeant N.J. Reed's story. My first pilot, Staff Sergeant Atkins and I, took part in a patrol on the fifth morning, its object being to secure and hold houses at the northeast corner of the perimeter. Our section, commanded by Lieutenant Palmer, held a house overlooking a crossroads. After settling in, we awaited the usual hectic night, but it did not develop. The nights from then on were almost deathly quiet, only patrol skirmishes breaking the silence. We heard that many of the enemy troops were withdrawn for resting after dark. On the sixth afternoon, an enemy supply lorry took the wrong turning and drove straight towards us. A pit bomb damaged it and knocked out the crew. The lorry was later towed to divisional headquarters and its contents distributed among the troops, included with German cigarettes, unpleasant but nevertheless welcome. That night the glider pilots on our right went house clearing and we could hear their opponents calling for stretcher bearers. Later I had some sleep but was awakened on the seventh morning by the noise of firing. German infantry were attacking but we held them off, our section hitting several who walked within yards of our concealed trench. Then they brought up a self-propelled gun. Our piot struck the chassis, but the undamaged gun retaliated by shelling us out of our good position. All of our section hit by shrapnel were sent to the RAP, the more serious cases having to go to the CCS in German hands. Leaving the RAP, I joined a group of glider pilots setting up positions in the woods with the remnants of the 4th Parachute Brigade. Sunday, September the 24th, our 8th day, was my birthday. I had a birthday present that morning, three hours of constant mortifier. On the ninth day, we received orders to move out that night. White lead tapes were set up and boots were wrapped. During the day, we watched Boston's and Mitchell's bombing to the north. At zero hour, we moved off, and after some instants, including being shelled by our own 25-pounders, we reached the river. Waiting for a boat at the water's edge was even more uncomfortable than a day at Fargo, the glider pilot regimental depot. It was pitch black and raining. The puzzled Germans used flares, mortar bombs and machine guns with little effect except for one unlucky salvo which sank a boat loaded with wounded. After several hours I was ferried across by a British RESC boatman. Safely over, military policemen directed us down a muddy slide onto the road and off we tramped to Elst. 
a tot of rum and a bite to eat at Elst, and we were transported to CCS to have our complaints attended to. Then a convoy across the bridge to Nijmegen, where we were surprised to see our administrative troops awaiting us with evident concern in spite of their own hazardous journey. Staff Sergeant Vic Wade's story. On the third day after landing, the situation was becoming serious. Jerry had captured the landing ground only after a costly resistance by our forces and was piercing the outer perimeter at Oosterbeek. We had withdrawn towards the centre of the perimeter and part of the force was dug in on the edge of a wood. Soon, a German tank was seen advancing from the wood across our front and trundling determinedly across the open ground. Suddenly, to our amazement, two men appeared running out of the woods in close pursuit of the tank. One was armed with a piet, which although a comparatively light weapon becomes extremely heavy when at the double. The other was carrying the bombs, which seem equally as heavy in such circumstances. In a matter of seconds, the tank was enveloped in smoke affected by a smoke grenade. With speed and efficiency, the piet was brought into action and two bombs were effectively fired into the rear of the tank, which was completely disabled. Through the haze, the crew appeared out of the turret and I assure you, they had a very warm welcome. Whether these deeds were recognised, I don't know, but such courage should be lauded, for no one can estimate the number of lives saved by their action. The day when my colleagues were obsessed with the fear of becoming casualties was on Monday the 26th of September, when news came through of the proposed withdrawal. I shared those feelings and wished only for zero hour when I would be away from it all. That our sector ever knew of such a plan was due to the heroism of three men. For two days our sector, which comprised a row of houses by this time shell-shattered, had been cut off from the remainder of the division. The Germans had gradually encircled us and we were kept well occupied 24 hours a day. There was no wireless communication and the suggestion that we were still part of an Allied plan came only from the sound of Second Army shells shrieking through the air jerry woods. And this, indeed, was a source of comfort. On this Monday two captains and a staff sergeant, Louis Hagen, later decorated with the M.M., volunteered to go through the enemy lines to contact Brigade HQ. They were successful in their mission and returned about 1,600 hours with the news that we had to withdraw at 2,200 hours. Instructions were that we should hold on to our particular houses, engaging only in sporadic fire, so that when the time to withdraw came, there would be no marked cessation of fire to arouse suspicion. During the hours of light, we prepared the material, from carpets and other household goods, which would be tied round our boots to muffle the sound when we withdrew. Stand to, the tension was great. The period of waiting was a nightmare. The hopeless situation had suddenly been transformed into one of hope and inconsequence. Each one was terrified that something would happen to prevent his taking part in the withdrawal. My allotted position was by the wall of a house covering the side approach with a Bren gun. Kneeling behind me was my friend, with whom I had flown for over a year, and he was laden with grenades. Both of us were excited, and we exchanged at intervals, OK Vic, OK Dido. The horror of the situation was that a sniper, positioned in a ruined house across the road, had our post well taped despite the darkness. He would fire tracer intermittently, hitting the wall not more than three feet above our heads. You can well imagine our thoughts, but on no account could we leave our posts. With joy we received the order to withdraw one by one and take up our appointed place at the rear of the houses, beneath the cover of a friendly hedgerow. Many never survived the two-hour crawl and march through the enemy lines to the bank of the Lower Rhine. It is an experience I never wish to have repeated. I count it an honour to have been associated with such men and to have served in the Airborne Division. 
All through the battle, wireless communication failed and Major General Urquhart was never in touch with General Browning. Because of this, the information passed onto the RAF was very meagre. As the battle developed and the airborne force was reduced in numbers, it was forced away from the original dropping zones because these could not be wrested from enemy hands. This being so, a new zone had to be chosen. Through the breakdown in communication, this detail never got through to the RAF and as a result, the vital supplies they dropped fell into German hands and not into those of the airborne division. In order to carry out this operation, the 38 and 46 group aircraft had to fly through highly concentrated flak, an immensely hazardous feat because of the low speed and height at which the aircraft had to fly. Nothing daunted, on flew the Royal Air Force into this hail of bullets and shrapnel, trying to bring sustenance to the beleaguered garrison. It is a terrible thought that those strained and desperate men of the 1st Airborne Division had to watch the whole of these parachuted supplies drop into enemy hands, and that the RAF suffered so many casualties in a fruitless journey. The sight of burning aircraft circling the zone, with no hope of survival, was terrible to see. Yet the operation was carried out in the finest traditions of inter-service cooperation. The 1st Airborne Division War Diary shows that on the fifth day the situation was desperate. They had had no news of the elements fighting in Arnhem or on the bridge for 24 hours. Their casualties were extremely heavy and the ammunition was running out, but still no relief was at hand. There were still another four terrible days to go, while this gallant force remained there. It now became imperative that full communication of the situation be sent to General Browning at Airborne Corps HQ. Major General Urquhart selected his GSO-1, Lieutenant Colonel C.B. McKenzie, and Lieutenant Colonel E.C. Myers, C.B.E. DSO, to carry the information of the state of the division. They managed to inflate a rubber boat and to cross the Lower Rhine with great courage, and although fatigued, they got through and discussed plans for evacuation, which they got back to their divisional commander. The evacuation was arranged for the night of September the 25th, 26th, and was to start at 10pm, and it was imperative that the withdrawal should be done in silence and at night. It was arranged that the division should move down to the bank of the Lower Rhine, near Oosterbeek. Thus, the airborne division prepared itself for withdrawal, leaving both enemy and friends. The Dutch people had shown immense patience and fortitude in frightful circumstances. How could it be described the feeling which must have been theirs? For they had seen this wonderful force drop from the skies to liberate them from German occupation. Yet, as the battle developed, they had to witness their town being reduced to rubble and ashes. Despite the most terrible ordeal... They gave every assistance. The resistance groups had fought with tenacious courage. The Dutch women had nursed and tended the wounded, and they had supplied food and water. Yet now they were to be left, to face who knew what reprisals. Indeed, the 1st Airborne Division were leaving friends, the wounded lying in their hundreds, unable to cross the Lower Rhine, and knowing that they had to face prisoner of war camps. The doctors and chaplains cheerfully stayed with them, knowing that their only fate was to be prisoners of war too. It is with much pride that the Glider Pilot Regiment can claim that they were selected to be guideposts on the night of the withdrawal. Such was their discipline that these men stood all through the night helping others to freedom. It was here that the men must have been tested to the limit, yet they did not fail. A heavy bombardment had been arranged by the 2nd Army to cover the withdrawal, and the Germans, who were also tired but wary of any movement, mistook this bombardment for cover for reinforcements. The crossing was extremely hazardous and there were too many men for the boats. Many were drowned, killed and wounded in this crossing, yet it went relentlessly on. By noon of September the 27th, the ordeal had come to its end, and the epic of the Battle of Arnhem was over. Out of the 10,095 men of the 1st Airborne Division, 7,605 officers and men were killed, wounded and missing. The Glider Pilot Regiment emerged tremendously proud but desperately reduced. Their casualties in this operation were 
23 officers and 124 staff sergeants and sergeants killed, 31 officers and 438 staff sergeants and sergeants wounded and prisoners of war. A total of 615 glider pilots. For the regiment this was all but a death blow, for to make up the replacements to train this number to fly and give them the necessary experience would be truly impossible. This was to be the cause of extraordinary action being taken, as will be told later. The result of the operations in Holland proved to me that everything had been done to perfect the fighting abilities of the glider pilot regiment. They had flown some 600 gliders into this battle and in doing so had brought to the battle many thousands of men and jeeps and guns. Their fighting ability, spirit and adaptability had been tested to the limit and had not been found wanting. One further interesting point is that Lieutenant General Browning found that he had, after the glider landings of the 82nd and 101st Airborne Divisions, over a thousand glider pilots who could have been used with tremendous impact in the Arnhem battle, but for the fact that they had no formation on the ground, no military training in the fullest sense. Had this been so, he might have used this force to release an American battalion of infantry holding the 25-mile perimeter round Nijmegen, and this might have relieved the pressure on Arnhem. He could not do so. In fact, he had no reserve at the most critical moments. Even when the battle was in its third day and the Guards' armoured division was battling for the bridge of Nijmegen, it was impossible to get infantry up from the eindhoven Grava road owing to congestion and the continuous cutting of the road itself. However, so far as I was concerned, Arnhem fully satisfied me on one count, that the formation, training and equipment of the glider pilot regiment had been fully vindicated. Thank you for listening to my reading of Wings of Pegasus by George Chatterton. I hope you enjoyed it. If this has piqued your interest, there are six other audiobooks available to independent company members on our Patreon site, including The Ship by C.S. Forrester and Tank by Ken Tout. It's £5 a month, and on top of audiobooks read by me, you get unlimited access to exclusive content, weekly live streams, and early access to merchandise and other deals. To join, all you need to do is search patreon.com slash wehaveways. I'll be back tomorrow with the next episode of George Chatterton's Wings of Pegasus. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, US Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics US, brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. It was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. 
I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts.